Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to come together and to gather with the saints here at Calvary. I do just pray, Father, that you will just bless our time, that you will allow it to be fruitful, that you will give us ears to hear. Father, I pray that you will just continue to work in each of our hearts, that, Father, you will help us to see what your word has to say and, and how we are to live in light of all that you've done for us in your Son in the light of the fact that he will be returning someday. Father, help us to be ready for that. Help us to live accordingly. Bless the preaching of your word. And Father, may your word go forth with great power. And may blinders come off to those who are still here, Lord, that may be walking in darkness. May you just remove the blinders and allow them to see all that your word has to say. And for those of us that are in Christ, I pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts and help us to excel still more. I ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, well, this morning I want you to imagine yourself, if you were, going to the doctor's office. Now, for some of you older saints, that won't be too hard. You were just there yesterday, right? Uh, For some of you, though, you don't even know you you have a doctor, right? You've never kind of been, but, uh, you know, whatever the case, I want you to use your imagination and I want you to picture yourself in the doctor's office. You're talking with your doctor about how you're feeling, you're sharing with him all of your various aches and pains, your family health history, etc., when then all of a sudden he looks at you very seriously and he tells you that you have a terminal condition. Seeing how stunned you are by the news, he apologizes and he offers you his deepest condolences. But then he leaves you in that room to think and to ponder about the diagnosis. And I want you, as you picture yourself sitting in that office, I want you to imagine the thoughts and the feelings that would be rushing through your mind. I want you to think deeply about what would matter most to you as you realize that your life on earth was about to come to an end. Just out of curiosity, are any of you out there thinking about your high-definition TVs, the square footage of your house, your iPhone, maybe some of you are, your iPad? Are any of you sitting in that doctor's office thinking about how the, the place that you work at is ever going to get along without you or who's going to take out the trash cans after you die? Do you find yourself wishing you had more time left so that you could get through all of the movies that you've yet to binge watch on Hulu or Netflix? Do you find your mind pondering whether or not this is the year that your team finally is going to win it all? And if you're UCLA, the answer is still a resounding no. (laughs) Not going to happen. But as you sit there, as you sit there in that doctor's office with... These thoughts going there. I think about what's filling your mind. Better yet, as you sit there in that doctor's office, considering the brevity of life, what should be filling your mind? I mean, if you're somebody that has placed your faith and trust in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ, then the reality of being ushered into the presence of our Lord will undoubtedly come to your mind. Thinking about standing in his presence. It was the Apostle Paul that tells us, in 1 Corinthians 5.8, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But let me ask you, does that thought encourage you or frighten you? 
Do you find yourself sitting in that doctor's office afraid and anxious? Or is there a peace that passes all understanding because you understand where you're going and what's going to happen? And you have nothing to fear. And you have nothing to fear because Jesus has taken care of it all. He's paid your debt. He's paid the price. All you need to do is come and enter the joy of your master. Well, consider this sanctuary your doctor's office. Consider this pastor your doctor. And consider this passage your doctor's news. Because each and every one of us sitting in this sanctuary right now has been infected by a deadly disease. A disease that will someday in the not too distant future take our lives. And that disease is sin. And the Bible helps us to understand that it is indeed terminal. But does hearing that your terminal disease is only sin give you some relief? Does it put you at ease and, and cause you to think that you still have plenty of time left to live, that your disease won't really affect you until you're in your 70s, 80s, 90s? And then if it does, then you neither understand your sin nor what the Bible says about the times we are living in. I'm certain that the people of Noah's time felt as if they had all the time in the world to live and to keep living however they were living. I'm confident that they thought nothing of his warning of an impending judgment that was to come upon the earth. I'm sure they laughed and they mocked Noah and his sons as they worked on the ark for all of those years, thinking what fools to be wasting their time building something like that. But a day did come whereby the sky and the land opened up and water came forth to such a degree that the entire world was flooded and only those who were on the ark were preserved. I'm sure that many people have felt as if they had plenty of time to live, plenty of time to play, plenty of time to repent, only to find themselves involved in an unexpected tragedy. People wake up every day thinking that they'll go to work, come home, and do the same thing the next day only to never make it home. There's a certain degree of uncertainty that comes with life in a broken world. And yet it's surprising to me how many of us don't like to acknowledge this. We don't like to think that we are going to someday die or that something could happen to us. We, we like to think that we're in control of things, that somehow we can master our own destinies and, and we can control exactly what happens so long as we really set our minds to it. I mean, if our minds are right and we think about the right things, then everything's going to just be wonderful and everything's going to be perfect. And yet each of us knows of people that have died unexpectedly. We all know of people that didn't plan to die when they did. But the uncertainty of life and death is not the only reality that we need to contend with. For there is also the impending return of the Lord. You know, the New Testament gives us the promise that Jesus Christ will return again. And yet many live as if it were not true. It's not really an accurate thing. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, this is truth. This is going to happen Jesus speaks of his eminent return in John 14, 2 through 3. It says this, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The angels speak of Christ's imminent return. In Acts 1, 10 through 11, it says this, And they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. James speaks of Christ's imminent return in James 5, 8. He says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. John speaks of Christ's imminent return in Revelation 22, 18 through 20. He writes this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You see, the discussion surrounding Jesus' return has has been the topic of many sermons. I mean, without question, many of Jesus' early disciples believed that his return was going to happen in their lifetimes. They were, they were convinced of it. And as a result, they lived every day with a certain expectation of seeing this return. And yet, here we are some 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't returned. So what does this mean? Does this mean that he's not coming? Does it mean that something has gotten in the way of his return, that he's wanted to come but he's been hindered by circumstances beyond his control? Certainly not. You know, an argument can be made that God is not hindered by time in the same way that we are. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, or as a watch in the night. You see, God does not view time in the same way that we do. And quite honestly, if you've always existed... Time isn't such a big deal, is it? And yet God, speaking through various New Testament writers, has told every generation leading up to and including ours that the second coming of Christ is near. Why has he done this? Well, the answer to this question is critical, and I think that William Barclay offers us some pretty keen insight when he writes these words. He says, quote, The simple fact is that... Behind this, there is one inescapable and most personal truth. For every one of us, the time is near. The one thing which can be said of every man is that he will die. For every one of us, the Lord is at hand. We cannot tell the day and the hour when we shall go to meet him, and therefore all life is lived in the shadow of eternity. So again, this morning, we're going to look at a text that was written to a group of Christians that were... They were suffering. They were suffering persecution and hardship. Things were difficult for them. For them, living in light of Christ's return was, a, was essential to their persevering. It gave them hope. It gave them the ability to press on. Being reminded of the fact that a day was coming whereby all would be made right was a great motivation for them. And I don't know about you, but the more I live in this broken world, the more I'm motivated by the fact that Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and I look forward to that day. 
with great anticipation that he is going to come back. But it gave these believers specifically the ability to to press on. And again, you and I are living in that same time and we're not facing the same persecution, but we are living in a broken world still. And life in this broken world is hard and things aren't right and things aren't as they should be. And we long for things to be as they should be. And so we eagerly await Christ's return. We're still in need of being reminded that a day is coming. Right? A day is coming whereby everything will be restored and everything will be as it should be, as it was created to be. It'll be perfect. Sin, death, sorrow, pain, all of those things will be done away with. So with that, turn with me, if you would, to First Peter chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses... 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Follow along as we read from our text. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So again, this morning I want to challenge each of us to examine how we are living in light of the fact that the end of all things is near. In our text we find five ways, five ways that God calls Christians to live, five ways that demonstrate that we are living with this end in view. So whether you find yourself in the midst of suffering for your faith or drowning in a sea of postmodernism thought, God wants you to examine yourself to see if you're living like the end is near. Our text this morning starts with these words. It says, the end of all things is near. And it's it's this statement that sets the stage really for everything that we're going to be looking at this morning. So I I, want to make sure that we don't just kind of breeze right by it and, and hereby miss what is to act as the means of motivation for the behavior we are to demonstrate as Christians. The end of all things is near. And I guess the question I need to ask each of you is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Does your current way of living show that you really believe that the end is near? Do the things you're pursuing, I mean, those things you're really running hard after, those things you're really seeking with all of your, all of your being, you're really invested in, do they show that you're expecting Jesus Christ to come back at any moment. My fear is that far too many of us have forgotten how we are to live. If the truth be told, we, we become a little, we've become a little too comfortable here in this world. And we've forgotten that this world isn't our home. This isn't it. 
We have something far greater to. We've forgotten the words of our Lord where he says in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. And as a result, many of us have been lulled to sleep. We've become apathetic in our pursuit of, of God. We've, concerned, we've become more concerned about the next movie that we're going to watch and accumulating of things than we are about the next truth that God is going to teach us in His Word or bring to mind as we turn to Him in prayer. You see, the end is near, so let me encourage you to stop pursuing those things that are only going to burn when it's all said and done. The end is near, so stop indulging in those lusts that are conforming you more and more into the image of this world. The end is near. So stop trying to straddle the line between being godly and being accepted by the world. Oh, how I wish some of you would wake up and understand that at any moment you could find yourself literally standing in the presence of the Lord. Oh, how I wish I could awaken each of you to the nearness of the Lord because I'm convinced, and Scripture helps us to see this, that when a person realizes the nearness of Christ, his life changes. You cannot and will not walk in obedience to Jesus Christ unless you are thoroughly convinced that he is real and that at any time you may find yourself standing before him in order to give an account of the life that you have lived here on earth. You see, if Jesus Christ is nothing more than some kind of a safety net or, a, or some form of fire insurance for you just in case, then guess what? Your life is going to reflect that. And you will live, unfortunately, like the unbeliever that you are, giving little to no thought of that day that you will stand in the presence of Jesus. But on the other hand, if you are convinced that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and that nobody, nobody gets to the Father except through Him. If that truth has penetrated your heart, if that truth has gotten into your head, if the blinders have come off and you've been able to see clearly that this is indeed true, then that will come forward in the way that you live and how you conduct yourself and the things that you say and the things that you do you will live anxiously awaiting that glorious day whereby you will be ushered into an eternity of being in his blessed presence forever. Peter knew that the believers he was writing to were being persecuted, that they were suffering greatly for their faith. They were were being crushed for the sake of the gospel. He knew that they would be tempted to forget God's promises, to to possibly turn away from the faith because things were hard. Life was hard. Following Jesus was hard. Therefore, he wrote so as to encourage them to persevere, to remember how they were to live in light of their current circumstances. But what about you? What about you? Are you growing weary because of persecution? Or are the things of this world just a little more appealing to you? Remember, brothers and sisters, the Lord is not mocked. You may be able to fool everyone around you into believing that you're this wonderful Christian, that you're sold out for God. 
but you will never be able to fool God. He knows your every thought. He knows your every action. And according to Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of of him with whom we have to do. So again, the best way to determine if we really believe that the end is near is to examine how we are living. Just as if you learned that you only had one year to live would radically change your pursuits, so too will knowing that the end is near. And the first thing, according to our text, that we must do to demonstrate that we are living with the end in view is to live soberly. To live soberly. God calls us to be a people who live soberly. So for those of you taking notes, this is the very first thing. We're going to have five of these. But God calls us to live soberly. It says, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, the two verbs that are used here are almost synonymous, and they help us to see the importance of thinking soundly and rationally. If you and I are not careful to take our thoughts captive, like 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to do, then we can easily be led astray by our, by our feelings or the common thoughts of our day as to what is or isn't acceptable. If you and I are not able to come to a situation and think about it rightly, biblically, then we will be prone to respond in an irrational manner. If we don't have our eyes wide open to the fact that we are to be living with what John Piper terms a wartime mindset, then we will continually fall prey to Satan's snares and traps. Listen to how Piper explains this wartime mindset in his book entitled Don't Waste Your Life. He writes, quote, It tells me that there is a war going on in the world between Christ and Satan, truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. It tells me that there are weapons to be funded and used, but that these weapons are not swords or guns or bombs, but the gospel and prayer and self-sacrificing love. And it tells me that the stakes of this conflict are higher than any other war in history. They are eternal and infinite, heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal torment. End quote. So having this sober And rational view of life helps us to make sure that that we invest our time and our resources in the things that really and truly matter. You see, too many people within the church have become intoxicated with the things of this world such that they are not able to discern God's will. They're not able to think soberly, rightly. C.S. Lewis put it well when he writes this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too Easily pleased. End quote. You see, all sin, if we stop and think about it, is an irrational act, isn't it? And when we view it in contrast to the glory of Jesus, I mean, only a fool would exchange the truth of God for a lie. Only a fool would worship the creature rather than the creator. And yet, if the truth be told, this is exactly what we do when we sin. We act like ignorant children who are content with our mud pies rather than basking in the glory of our risen Lord. 
And not only does this affect our physical lives, it also carries over and contaminates our prayer lives. Instead of turning to God and asking Him to do great and wonderful things in and through us for His glory, we ask Him for new houses, new cars, new jobs, new neighbors, new cell phones, new this, new that. And again, those things aren't wrong. They're just shallow, right? I mean, by failing to think soberly and rationally, we have allowed our prayer lives to be reduced to times whereby, whereby we do nothing but ask God for our latest and greatest desires, which are probably more worldly than we would care to admit. Prayer for many is a far cry from what it should be, assuming that it's something that happens at all. You see, if you and I are to think soberly about life, then we should understand just how much we need the Lord in, our, in order to live life as we should. The only rational approach to life is to pray often. Because when we pray, we're acknowledging just how dependent we are on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're acknowledging just how much we need Him. We are humbling ourselves and acknowledging He is the only way it's going to happen. It was the famous missionary to China, J. Hudson Taylor, that once said this, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked if I might help him. I ended up asking him to do his work through me. You see, the sober, right-thinking person is the one that understands that apart from God, he can do nothing. It is only as we learn to rely on the power and the strength of God that we can hope to accomplish anything with any kind of eternal significance. Prayer is the means by which the Christian shows his understanding of being a dependent creature. Something that doesn't sit too well, if we're to be honest, in our self-made, self-reliant American culture whereby we control everything. We're the masters of our destiny, right? Prayer doesn't sit very well in that, but prayer is essential in the Christian life. Prayer breaks down the facade of our being in control of every situation and every circumstance. It causes us to think rightly about ourselves and our condition as we enter into the presence of a perfectly holy God to make our requests made known to Him. It helps us to remember that the end is near and we need to be busy about our Master's business. So having established our need to live soberly, we're now ready to look at the second way that we must conduct ourselves if we are to show that we are living with the end in view, that being our need to live lovingly. God calls us to live lovingly. And we touched on this last week, but we're going to touch briefly on it here. Looking at verse 8, we are told this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. In an effort to show the superiority of love in all things, Peter puts a great emphasis on the necessity of showing mutual love. This is a common thread that's woven throughout all of Scripture. God has always called his people, called his people to, to be a people that demonstrate a deep love for one another. In the Shaw Pocket Bible Handbook, the, the importance of love is made perfectly clear when they write this, quote, All religions have some idea of the importance of love. Christian theology stresses the importance of love because God has revealed that he is love. Love is both what God is and what he has done. God always acts in love. In the Bible, love is described as personal between persons and selfless, desiring the best for others. Christians are to be known by the fact that they love God and others. Their love is not to be like the love that the world has. Love is best seen in actions and in most cases is to be identified with what we do 
and our compassion and commitment to those around us, regardless of the object's virtue, our loving attitudes and behavior are to reflect God's love, end quote. You see, Jesus, Jesus taught that it was both a love for God and a love for man that fulfilled the law. And without, the lo- without love, the Christian life is rendered as useless. And one should seriously question his love for God if he finds himself unable to love those that have been made in his image. I mean, no one speaks with the tongues of men and of angels. He is reduced to nothing more than a noisy gong if he is without love. If one knows great and mysterious things and has the faith to move mountains, yet is without love, he is considered as nothing. If one sells all he has to feed the poor and suffers even until death, but does so without love, Scripture tells us he is benefited in no way. It is one's love for Jesus Christ that drives his love for his brothers. And Peter insists that this love is to be fervent. The term that he uses here is often used to describe a horse at at full gallop or, or to bring to mind the taut muscle of strenuous and sustained effort like that of an athlete. Christian love is not always easy, and yet it is always, always required. The Bible knows nothing of the so-called Christian that loves his theology and has yet little to no regard for his brothers. Those that think that Christianity would be great if it wasn't for the people. (laughs) They have no understanding of biblical Christianity. You see, there are some people within the Christian community, and I'm not pointing anybody out, so nobody take this personally, right? But there are some people in the Christian community that are difficult to love. I'm sure you got some thoughts going through your head right now, right? I mean, they may be draining, insulting, demanding, rough around the edges. They may even seem incapable of loving or being loved. And yet, it is our love for one another that demonstrates to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. This is a key component for us, brothers and sisters, and we need to make sure that we do not miss it. Loving each other can expose us to all kinds of grief and sorrow, and yet it is vital to our growth as believers. Thomas Akempis, you don't need to take all that he says, but he says something really good here about love. He says this, he says, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, we must give, you, you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell, end quote. Whereas we put ourselves at risk by loving, we put ourselves in danger of hell by not loving. As we love people, they want to undoubtedly sin against us as we will against them. And yet it is our love for one another that will enable us to forgive each other as this happens because love covers a multitude of sins. When you truly love somebody, you're willing to not hold their sin against them In a sense, you you are willing to cover their sins. 
Now, this does not mean that we do not ever confront a person with their sin or that we are blind to their sin. It simply means that when we love somebody, we will be quick to deal graciously with them. Why? Well, because we want to see the relationship restored. We want to see peace restored to that relationship. There is no delight in exposing a person's sin or parading it before others. It's not love to hold an individual's sin against them or to allow their sin to hinder your relationship with them. Sin must be dealt with, and when it is, our love must move us to cover up the offense. This is what takes place when we sin against God. Right? He does not hold our sin against us. In fact, in 1 John 1, 9, it beautifully states, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious promise. What a wonderful truth that this, that this is. And, and God calls each and every one of us, his children, to do the same thing that he is willing to do for us. And when people sin against us, we need to be quick to forgive and show them love. Having covered our need to live soberly and lovingly, we're now ready to look at the third way that we must conduct ourselves if we're to show that we are living with the end in in view, and that being our need to live hospitably. God calls us to be a people that live hospitably. We see this as we continue reading in verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. See, hospitality is, as one commentator puts it, an affectionate concern for strangers that expresses itself in offering them food and shelter. You know, I don't know, maybe this is why so many Christians, uh, so many Christian functions seem to revolve around food, right? I mean, we just love to just kind of gather together and be hospitable and eat a meal together, right? We offer these things that God has given us. I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about how much the early church depended on hospitality? kind of hard in our culture to figure how this plays itself out practically. But, I mean, back then, without it, many missionaries, many people who were trying to advance the gospel and spread the gospel, many of them would have found themselves thrust into a public inn whereby they would have been exposed to acts of drunkenness and immorality. And I assure you that these public inns were hardly the place whereby one could be encouraged in a service to the Lord, where one could be lifted up in trying to go out and do the hard work of evangelizing and, and bringing good news to, to the saints. You know, the early church would have been greatly impacted were not for the common practice of, of hospitality. Many homes were opened up for the sake of, of gathering together to worship the Lord. And these homes became a place of, of great blessing as these saints gathered together to be encouraged and to be edified and built up in the Lord. And Peter understood the importance of hospitality. And so he encourages everyone, not just elders or or those who possess the gift to show hospitality to one another. He calls everyone to do this. Hospitality is an expression of Christian love whereby we show concern and regard for individuals that we might not know or might not otherwise have any dealings with. You see, the showing of hospitality is not something that is reserved only for those who possess 2,000 square foot houses or above. In fact, you don't even have to own a house to be hospitable. All you have to do is love people, especially people you don't even know, in a very tangible way by sharing what God has so graciously given to you. This is something that every believer, every believer is capable of doing and called to do. The New Testament is full of instances 
that where we are called to live hospitably. Romans 12:13 tells us all to practice hospitality. 1 Timothy 3:2 instructs us that an overseer is to be hospitable. 1 Timothy 5:10 makes having shown hospitality to strangers a necessary quality in order for that widow to be put on the church's care list. Hebrews 13:2 reminds us all that we are to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And Jesus, when speaking with those blessed saints on his right hand, brings to mind that he was a stranger. And they invited him in. But to the accursed on his left, he recalls that he was a stranger. And they did not invite him in. You see, hospitality is an essential Christian trait that we all need to make sure that we are practicing, and yet there is something that we must never allow ourselves to do when we practice hospitality. We are never to complain. And I don't know about you, but it's very easy to go there sometimes, isn't it? To grumble about all the preparation, all the pre-work that's involved in being hospitable. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of acting like the Pharisees, a group that Jesus described as being like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man bones and uncleanness, Matthew 23, 27. See, if our attitudes, brothers and sisters, are not right, then our hospitality is really not all that hospitable. We may look the part. Our homes may look very inviting. We may seem like we're being hospitable, but if our hearts are wrong then our hospitality is really not hospitable. Yes, practicing hospitality can become costly or it can be inconvenient. Some people may even take advantage of your hospitality. But if you remember this, that the end is near, we will be able to bear any discomfort with, cheer- or with cheerfulness as we walk in obedience to our glorious Lord. Now, thus far, we've seen the importance of living soberly, lovingly, and hospitably, which means we're now ready to look at our fourth way that we must conduct ourselves if we're to show that we are living with the end in view, that being our need to live faithfully. God calls us to live faithfully. And we find this call to faithfulness in verses 10 through 11a. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Now here lies a great and glorious truth that I want to make sure that we all get here. If you are a Christian, God has entrusted you with a spiritual gift that you are to use for the building up of his body. And while you have done nothing to deserve or earn this gift, being the benevolent father that he is... God has given it to you. Point that you were saved, you were, in, you were given the spiritual gift to use, not for yourself, not for your own glory, but for the benefit of his body and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this. If you're a Christian, you have been entrusted with a gift. And even if this gift is a natural talent like teaching or singing or drawing, it can become supernaturally energized so as to be a great blessing to others within the body. In fact, this is the very reason that it's been given to you. Not to hold on to for yourself, not to use it to your own gain, but to use it for the benefit of the body. I think the difficulty for many people can come in trying to discern what their spiritual gift really is. Like, I want to. 
I want to know my gift. How, how do I figure that out? I mean, there have been all kinds of tests created to help individuals determine their gift, right? Some of them may or may not prove to be helpful. But you know the most profitable way that I've seen people attempt to properly discern their spiritual gift? It's by trying things out. Doing something. Shocking, right? Do something. Try something. Give it a shot. See how it goes. I mean, if you, if you love to greet people, be a part of the, of the hospitality team. If you enjoy working with middle school or high school students, check out our youth ministry. If you like holding babies or you enjoy being spit up on, come on in. Come on into the nursery, right? Give it a shot. Try it out. But do something. Again, there's, there's ample opportunities for each and every one of us in this church to exercise our spiritual gift. In fact, get this, if everyone in this church made it a point to use their spiritual gift... We would be in awe of the multifaceted ministries that God would raise up amongst us. It would be amazing to see. Every believer is critical to the proper functioning of the local church. There is no gift that is not needed or that cannot be used for the service of Christ's body. Listen to what Paul has to say about the body in 1 Corinthians 12, 23-27. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You see, all these, uh, all these verses help us to clearly see we are all members of the same body. And as such, we are in all in need of each other. If you're a part of Christ's body and you're not being faithful to function in that capacity that he's called you to, then you're not only hurting yourself, you're actually hurting the entire body. Each and every one of us has a God-given responsibility to make an honest appraisal of our giftedness. And once we do that, brothers and sisters, you're to use that giftedness for the benefit of your brothers and sisters. But the problem is that some of you think that showing up is a spiritual gift. It's not. Okay. Showing up is not a spiritual gift. Some of you think you're doing your part simply by being here. Like, wow, here I am. Rejoice. Right? I mean, some of you think that God is impressed by how well you sit and learn because that's all you've ever done. You just sit there and you don't do anything within the body. I mean, some of you have been coming to Calvary for years and all you've done is just show up. I ask you, how are you benefiting others merely by your attendance? How are you being faithful to use that spiritual gift that God has given to you? I mean, listen to the words that are spoken to the unfaithful servant who simply buried the talent that was entrusted to his care in Matthew 25, 26 through 27. You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. You know, you and I need to be under the conviction that nothing we have, not our material goods, 
not our physical or mental talents. None of that belongs to us. We are all stewards that will have to give an account for how we maintained and managed what was entrusted to our care. If you're simply using for your own personal benefit or convenience what God has put put you in charge over, please understand that you are going to answer for that someday. You're going to stand in his presence someday. The end is near. And remember, our master is not far off. We will need to reckon with him very soon. So such, brothers and sisters, I I plead with you to examine how you are living. I, I beg of you to be busy about his work so that you may hear these wonderful words spoken to you someday. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master, not for a year, not for a thousand years, but for all of eternity. As those that have been endowed with gifts from God, we are to speak and serve in and through his power, but we are never to do either in a spirit of arrogance. It's with gentleness and humility that we're to use these gifts that he has given to us, never forgetting from where they have come. Right? Don't boast in your gift. Realize who it is from. It is from a good God who has entrusted it to you. So use it and use it well for his glory and for the betterment of the body. We've seen the importance of living soberly, lovingly, hospitably, and faithfully, which means that we're now ready to look at our fifth and final way that we are to conduct ourselves if we are to show that we are living with the end in view, that being our need to live reverently. God calls us to live reverently. Look at the final portion of verse 11. So that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, you and I have been created for one specific purpose. We have one purpose, and according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism Confession, that purpose is to glorify glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, the guys over at Westminster didn't just come up with this on their own. The idea of glorifying God is found throughout the Word of God. So listen to these passages. Psalm 86, 8 through 10. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Romans 11.36 tells us this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that wrote this about God. He says, God is the the eternal, the creator, the artificer and sustainer of everything that is glorious and holiness and power. He is the one to whom the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. He is a person and he has not only created everything and sustains everything, but everything is subject to his dominion and reign. Brothers and sisters, this is the God we're living for. This is the God that is worthy of our worship and praise. 
This is the God to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the God we're going to spend all of eternity worshiping and praising. And so right now, we need to make sure that we are a people that are living reverently, that we are living in such a way that we are seeking to bring glory to God in all that we say and do. That our acts are not to point people to us, but they are to point people to Jesus Christ so that he's put on display, so that he's exalted, so that he's lifted high. You know, so many times we want to take all the glory and all the credit for things, and we want to give it up to ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this cannot be. God calls us to be a people that live reverently, that live in such a way as to make his name great. And he's given us all the resources, all of the tools that we need, right? We have every spiritual blessing poured out on, on us from above. And they come from the hand of a good God who loves us and cares for us so much that he was well pleased to crush his one and only son. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's live in light of these great truths, these five truths that we are called to live. Let's, let's live as if the end is near because it is. We do not know what tomorrow holds. Whether we die or whether Jesus returns, we need to be ready to stand in his presence now. I know a lot of us don't like to think about these types of things, but this is an important thing for us to think about because we do not know what tomorrow holds. We do not know what God has in store. But if we're Christians, we should be eagerly awaiting his glorious return because we realize when that happens, all that is wrong in the world, all will be done away with and all will be made right. And I don't know about you, but that is the day that I look forward to and I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please join me as we close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. We thank you so much for your word and for the truth that it teaches us. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that you will do a work in them, that you will help them to uh, live out this Christian life, or that you will help each of us to put these things into practice so that we might be the people that you call us to be, so that Jesus Christ might be put on display. You have done so much for us, Father, even in our rebellion even in our, our hatred, you came and, and you plucked us out from the darkness and you brought us into the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, help us to live and to walk in a way that will make much of your son. I thank you for the opportunity to gather and to, to hear from your word. I pray, Lord, that you will give us all ears to hear and that you will help all of us to examine our lives to see if we are living in light of the fact that the end is near. We thank you and praise you and hold up the rest of our morning to you. In Christ's precious name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.